Now then, let's uh, turn to the passage that we read in the Gospel according to Mark and chapter 9. The man who has the demon-possessed boy asks Christ if he can do anything to help them, if he can to have compassion, to which Jesus responds in verse 23, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. So, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, it's hard uh, to imagine a, a greater contrast than the one that we have here between the events that took place at the top of the mountain and the events that are taking place at the bottom of the mountain. On top of the mountain, as we've seen over the last few days and especially this morning, we have heaven effectively recreated upon the earth. We have the presence of God the Father, we have the presence of God the Son, we have him there in his glory and the redeemed saints in a wonderful fellowship, Christ, Moses and Elijah. A fellowship of purity, of light and of holiness. And here at the bottom of the mountain we've got something altogether different. The presence of the devil is there, confusion, disorder and unbelief. And if the mountaintop was heaven and earth, on earth this is far more akin to hell on earth. What you have really at the bottom of the mountain is the devil doing what he always does, destroying men's lives and at the same time paralyzing the church of God and leaving her without power. Things, like I say, that he always delights to do. And it's useful just by the way to notice that it's not unusual to meet the devil after you meet God. I don't know if you've discovered that in your own pilgrimage, but very often when the Lord draws near to you, the devil's hot on his heels, and that shouldn't really surprise you. And quite often it's the case if you've had a communion in which the Lord has drawn near to your soul and spoken to you and blessed you, it's not unusual to find, as you come down from the mountain at a communion, it's not unusual to find the devil. And not just with a temptation, but sometimes with a severe oppression of one kind or another. So don't be surprised if you encounter the devil yourself over the next few days. And you may say, well, <coughs> that it's good to be forewarned because... To be forewarned is to be forearmed. But in this case, uh, to be forewarned is not the same as to be forearmed. Uh, to be forearmed, you actually have to put on the armor that God has given you. And it's listed for you in Ephesians chapter 6, 
every single part of it, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, you've got to put that on day by day. So for, for me to tell you that you may well meet the devil very soon after coming down from the Mount of a Communion doesn't leave you forearmed. The only thing that will leave you forearmed is to put on the armour that God has given you. We need to learn to do that day by day. Now what happened at the foot of the mountain was very simply this. Uh, the Lord, of course, and Peter, James and John had been on top of the mountain for a time of concentrated and consecrated prayer all night. We saw already what was involved in all that. At the foot of the mountain, the nine were left and they spent the night there. But early in the morning, a crowd had begun to assemble. Now, it was very difficult for the Lord to escape almost at any time. It was somehow amazing just how people could find him. And so, as I said, a crowd had assembled. And amongst the crowd, there was this man who had what we would call today just a very troubled son. A very troubled son. And of course, it's, it's not an ordinary trouble. And trouble very seldom is ordinary. What's wrong with this young man is that he is actually possessed by an evil spirit. Now at one level you can consider that to be an extraordinary thing. But on another level it is in fact quite an ordinary or a common thing. Let me take first the extraordinary aspect and when I say extraordinary, I mean by that, that the day in which Christ lived was a day of evil and of darkness. It was a day when the church was very poor, brought very low, and had forgotten some fundamental doctrines. Not even, least of which, I should say, not least, was actually the suffering and death of the Messiah himself. It's amazing sometimes just how low the church of God can sink visibly. And the day was characterized by evil, uh, particularly because, as the book of the Revelation says, the devil had come down to earth having great wrath because he saw that his time was short. In Revelation 12 we have a picture of the dragon waiting at the feet of the church for the birth of the man-child, the birth of the Saviour. Now the devil can do his maths from Daniel chapter 9. The devil knows that the birth of the Messiah is imminent and his artillery is let loose. And there is a demonic presence in Jerusalem particularly, in the Holy Land particularly, at the time of the Saviour's birth, his growth and development, and during the days of his ministry. Demon possession is a common phenomenon because the devil is let loose because that was the day in which Christ was appointed to live and to conquer the works of the evil one. So that's true, a day of unusual activity on the demonic level, a day of unusual evil. So in that respect, there is an extraordinary element. There are so many possessed with evil spirits. But I, I don't want that fact to take away from another fact, one that is 
may be more important for us to consider. And that fact is the fact that we are all possessed by evil anyway. The devil himself has a control over us. Paul tells tells all of us in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter particularly in chapter 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not. Our natural condition in some respects is to believe not, but he furthers and deepens that blindness. And that means that, sadly, to be possessed by evil is our actual default condition. It's not the original default human condition, but it is now the default human condition. We are in the grip of the devil. We are possessed by the power of evil. Now, I'm conscious that that may not work itself out to the extent to which it could. It may not be as visible as we might and want to see it in order to believe it to be so. But the Bible tells us that that is the fact of the matter. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, church people, you are of your father, the devil, because the works of the devil are the works that you do. And there's no doubt, even though that's the case, that that is our natural and fallen condition, it is also true that still in this life, post-Pentecost, you can open the door of your heart to ever greater evils, so that where one unclean spirit dwelt, seven unclean spirits may then dwell. It's possible for evil to get a greater and greater foothold in your life, so you are consumed by a greater number of sins to a never greater degree. And friends, I think we live in such a day today, at least in the Western world we do. We're sometimes prone to look around ourselves and to say, well, the world's going this way or that way. We know very little about the world. We certainly know something about the Western world. There are many parts of the world where the devil is bound and where the Holy Spirit of God is working powerfully. Our nation is not one of those. Our nation is far more akin to the state of things in the Holy Land when our Lord was born. You sometimes just have to look around yourself, walk through the town or the streets, even the city where I came from in Glasgow. The amount of people you see that are evidently disturbed, confused, angry, it's a kind of look that they have in their eyes and a gaunt look on their faces. Rage. A rage that they show at home. A rage against any kind of authority. A rage even against people who love them. Rage. Almost sometimes, apart from the eccentricities of Legion's condition, something like Legion himself, the mad one, madman who was in the tombs, possessed. Evil's got a hold. Evil has a grip on the heart. It's a terrible condition to be in. To be tight in the grip of the devil. And this poor man that came to Christ had that in his home. His son had it in his life. 
His father has it effectively in his life because it's in his home. Many a poor father does. Many a poor mother does too. There was a woman who also came to Christ when he went way up north to the district of Syrophoenicia, which was as, as rare for him as to pass through Samaria. And it was the same reason that made him go up to the Syrophoenician territory as made him pass through the Samaritan territory, because there was a woman there in need. Same thing. Again, where a soul is needy, Christ may be found. That's the woman who came to him because her daughter was demon-possessed. She's living with that in her house. Somebody who's in the grip of evil and it exasperates her. And here is a man in exactly the same situation. Now, when he hears that Christ is in the vicinity, he believes that perhaps Christ can help. And so he does what I would think you would do or I would do for our son or our daughter in that situation. He took him to the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't be surprised to hear me say, as a minister of the gospel, that that is the right thing and the best thing to do. There will be other people who will suggest all kinds of cures for people with this kind of condition. Usually a cocktail of drugs. I don't say that all drugs are always wrong in these situations. Of course I don't say that. But the cure is always a cocktail of drugs. Or therapy of one kind or another. The answer is never really the gospel. Uh, Because people don't want the gospel to be the answer. And the reason they don't want it to be the answer is because they themselves are possessed. To some degree or another. By the devil. By his lies blinded by his blindness. I often think in this connection of a program I saw quite a number of years ago, it must be, it's an increasing number of years ago, because I remember it was during the time of the, of the Blair uh, government. I remember seeing a program on, um, probably a program they wouldn't show anymore, but a program about how effective a certain program was in America for rehabilitating prisoners who were considered more or less beyond hope. These, these people had had their lives turned around and changed and they were introduced back into society with an incredibly low reoffending rate. And government officials uh, from this country went over to America to see how it was being done. Of course, the answer was that it was being done through the gospel. That's what was actually happening because in that country, people were not fettered as they are in this country, and you were able to go freely in and to speak freely and to bring the gospel freely to these people, and they were being changed. But of course, the government officials from this country didn't really want to hear that, so they would ask things like, well, what are you doing to these people? And the answer was, well, we're actually telling these people about Christ and the way in which Christ can give you a new start and a new direction and clean up your life and give you hope and love and faith, and they would say, All right, but leave that to the side. What are the techniques and what are the methods? And they would say, it's not techniques or methods. It's the introduction of these people's lost and dying souls to the Lord Jesus Christ. The British response is, yes, but how do you do it? It's the same thing. They don't understand. They don't understand that coming to Christ is actually the answer. It's actually the answer for the person 
who's consumed with drink or drugs or with unbelief or with sexual immorality or with lying or with cheating or any other disease or disorder that sin has brought into our lives. What's the question? Christ the answer always is, always was. And that's why this man does the right thing by coming to Christ. We're told elsewhere, of course, of another woman in the Gospel narratives who had spent every last penny that she had trying to cure cure a 12-year-old hemorrhage that was draining the very life out of her. And she went to Christ and got her answer. The message is always the same. That the best thing to do for people like this is take them to Christ. You may say, well, I would love to take my son or my daughter to Christ, but they won't come to Christ for me. Well, there are different ways to take people to Christ. Certainly it's good to take people to the house of God, to take them under the preaching of the Word, to bring them under the power of the Word of God as it is sung and proclaimed in a worshipping assembly. That's a wonderful place to bring your son or daughter to Christ because Christ is there. But even if they don't come there yet, you can still take them where Christ may be found because he's not just in a place of worship and in the preaching of the Word. He is always at the throne of grace. He's always there. And it's called a throne of grace because he dispenses grace there and he dispenses mercy there. And like the Syrophoenician woman that I mentioned just a while back who refused to let Christ go until Christ healed her daughter, you keep taking your son or your daughter to Christ at the throne of grace until they come to him by faith. Or perhaps just one day they will turn up at last in the house of God They will come under the power of the word of God and they will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The man took his son to Christ. You take your son or your daughter to Christ. Even take your father or your mother to Christ. It may be that way round. Now, it's a remarkable thing that very often when we do that, we meet with obstacles. It's a staggering thing really, but The minute you try and do good, it's hard to do good. How often we find that in life. This man brings his son to Christ and Christ isn't there. He's gone up to the mountaintop. And he went up the previous evening and he still hasn't returned. And this man has no idea how long Christ might be on the mountain before he returns. After all... Moses was 40 days and 40 nights on a mountaintop. He doesn't know when the Lord will return. But of course, all isn't lost for the man because who does he have but nine disciples? Nine disciples who have been empowered by Christ, who have been taught by Christ. Nine disciples who have previously cast evil spirits out of other people. Well, Here they are, and that's ordinarily a good thing. They are Christ's ministers. They're Christ's ambassadors. They've been called to help, called to be guides, called to lead people to Christ, called to help people 
in their struggle against evil and against sin. But lo and behold, they're helpless. Can do nothing. For the first time in their ministry, they have tried to cast an evil spirit out of somebody and failed. All of them. The nine of them. There's obviously something wrong. They used to be able to do it, but they can't do it anymore. <clears throat> now, I'd like to look at that more closely. Uh, can't do it tonight, but we'll do it tomorrow. There's a reason why they, they lost their power, these nine men, and there was a way in which they could get their power back. But for us right now, what matters is that this man took his son to the Lord and met with nothing but disappointment. Couldn't find Christ, and when he found the ministers, the ministers were powerless to help. That's nothing new. Sad to say, in the Song of Solomon, which we were looking at recently at the prayer meeting, the church consulted, or a woman, a believer, consulted the watchmen, and they just beat her up which was a spiritual way of describing the abuse that she received effectively from watchmen who couldn't really tell her about her soul. They, they couldn't really tell her about sin or how to find a proper cure for sin. They couldn't tell her about repentance. They couldn't tell her about Christ. They just had false cures and false hopes. And when you're really sick, quack cures and quack hopes are of no use. So in a way it's hard to overstate the disappointment that this man feels. In a way, Christ was his last hope. That's usually how we find him anyway. That's usually how we find him anyway. And isn't it a miracle that Christ isn't fed up of that? Always being people's last hope. But it's hard to overstate the disappointment of it and the confusion of it as well. And the confusion that the man feels is a confusion that's felt in the crowd. What's going on here? These people are impotent. These ministers of Christ and his ambassadors are unable to do spiritual work for God. And amongst the crowd there are the scribes. They don't like the Saviour. And they begin to argue with the disciples. And a way, in a way, although we're not told exactly what the argument was, it's not difficult to imagine what it was. After all, it's very easy to argue from the incompetence of the ministers to the spuriousness of the religion. And it's not difficult to argue from the incompetence of the ministers to the actual incompetence of their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, there's nothing to this after all. It's all been smoke and mirrors all along. Or it's an illusion of some kind, or something even worse. There's nothing to this Christianity. There's nothing to church. There's nothing to conversion. There's nothing to be born again. There's nothing, nothing to it all. Just forget about it. As far as the scribes were concerned, these people could all just pack up and go home. That's the way the world reasons. And you know, <clears throat> to be honest, there's a lot of logic in that. If, 
If you and I are supposed to be the witnesses for Christ in this world, if we are supposed to be living epistles, living letters that are known and read by everyone, if we are the gospel that people are supposed to see and understand, then if my life isn't really right, and if your life isn't really right, it's not going to be a surprise in a way if the world looks on and says, well, neither is their master right. Neither is their religion right. Neither is there anything really in this heaven or in this hell or this need to be converted or born again. There's nothing to it. You know, it's a sobering and solemn thing that the world may decide there's nothing to religion because there's little to you and little to me. All that is an argument for us who believe the gospel to make sure that we are close to the Lord. That we have not lost our power and our spiritual liveliness and dynamism, but that we are close to the Lord Jesus Christ so that there is something in our lives that make people feel there's a substance and a reality to the Christian faith. What does the world think when we feel like the nine and when we have no power like the nine? But the interesting thing in a way is that this man doesn't give up and go home. When when a sinner is really looking for Christ, a sinner will find Christ and a sinner will not be put off by anything until he or she finds Christ. And it's vital when the church fails or when ministers fail that you don't give up on finding Christ himself. Christ is very bound up with his church, but he's not to be identified with his church. He's bound up with individual Christians, but he's not the same as them. Another Christian can't save your soul, but Christ can save your soul. There's a very, very big and important difference. And although in some ways it might be reasonable to judge Christ and Christianity by his disciples, in another way it absolutely isn't. Tonight, friends, I'm not calling you to be converted to a church. I'm not calling you to be converted to a denomination. I'm not calling you to associate yourselves with Christians. It's important to be connected to a church. It's important to associate with Christians. But I'm not calling you to any of that. In the name of Christ, I am calling you to Christ, who is greater than the church and who is greater than the Christian and who is the saviour of the soul. He is the one who can help you. He can help your child. He can help your son or your daughter, or as I said, your father and your mother. Christ himself personally is the answer to the needs of the soul. Not church or the Christian. But the fact is that the scene at the bottom of this mountain is just the opposite of what it was at the top. Heaven, blessing, faith, exalted conversation, glory at the top, at the bottom, anguish, failure, unbelief, strife and argument and a church brought into disrepute by the failure of nine apostles. And it's into this that Christ steps. And he does step right into it and it's interesting that he goes straight for the scribes. Straight for the scribes. And what he says to them is, what are you arguing with the disciples about? Now personally, I find that very illuminating and interesting and comforting. 
It's a reminder to us that Christ is the defender of his people even when they fail and when they come short. These nine apostles, as we'll see tomorrow, did let the Lord down, but he still doesn't let them down. And that's the wonder about our Saviour. We do let him down, but he just does not let us down. There are so many reasons why Christ could give up on these apostles, on the three at the top or the nine at the bottom. There's so many reasons tonight, I can think of them in my own life, why Christ should give up on me. I can. You probably can too as a Christian. He doesn't. He hasn't. He isn't. And he won't. doesn't do that. He doesn't give up on his own. He is always the advocate of his people and their defender. What is it that you are arguing with my disciples about? It's an interesting thing if you read the Gospels that the scribes don't actually answer him. Not for the first time they've discovered that it's easier to argue with Christians than it is to argue with Christ. Far easier. You may well discuss something with me and trip me up. That's fine. You may discuss something, and very often people take great satisfaction in discussing things with Christians that they think have maybe a lower intellectual capacity than themselves, or are perhaps less able to argue back than they are to argue with them, and they take some kind of great triumph out of giving them a kind of um, a put-down or a kind of gotcha moment, as they say. I've got you there. You can't explain this, this, or this. Do you think that's the argument over? Do you think the truth is always proved by who won the argument? The truth is not proved by who won the argument. The truth is proved by the facts. You can argue with me. It doesn't matter, really. What I would like you to do, friend, is to take your argument to Christ himself. <laughs> Let me introduce you to the advocate. I mean, what I would like to do, or what I would like you to do, is just to take the Bible, take it yourself, and go to the writer of the Bible and take your arguments to him. It's all the better for you if you don't do it in a high and mighty spirit, but that you actually just say, well, I'm going to read the Gospel of John tonight, or I'm going to read the Gospel according to Luke tonight, and I'm going to see what Christ has to say or what Christ does. Just do that. And you may find that it's just not so easy somehow to argue with the Saviour as it is to argue with his people. Really, it's small fry to beat Christians in an argument sometimes. Christ himself that you'll deal with. It's Christ that you'll deal with after all on the day of judgment. It's to him you must give an account. You're not going to give an account to me. You're not going to give an account to any other living Christian who walks the face of the earth or any Christian who died long ago. But to one man you give your account, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the scribes have plenty to say when they're bickering with his disciples, but nothing to say in the presence of the Lord. Nothing to say in the presence of the Lord. Now, um, if the scribes have nothing to say, the man with the sick son certainly does. He comes forward and he tells 
his story. And the story is that the evil spirit that com- comes into the home and has come into his family has almost complete control of his son. And there are times when it's physically manifest. He convulses, he foams at the mouth, and he becomes rigid. Symptoms of epilepsy. Now, we need to be careful because the Bible clearly distinguishes between medical conditions and conditions that are produced by the powers of the evil spirits. Clear distinction. See, there are, again, there are people who go around saying, oh, well, in Bible times, they all thought that everybody was ill, was being attacked by an evil spirit. No, they did not think that in Bible times. The Bible writers did not think that everyone who had epilepsy was um, attacked by an evil spirit. Sometimes it was plain epilepsy or some other medical condition. But the fact is that when the evil spirit sometimes took real possession of a person, they produced those kinds of symptoms to demonstrate their complete authority and complete control over a person. Sometimes when Legion spoke, he spoke as the man he used to be. At other times the voice was different and he spoke in the plural. We are Legion. A man who is sometimes himself sometimes not himself, because he has sold himself to the power of evil. Now the effect on Christ, when the man tells him his situation, is a surprising one. Normally the Lord's heart and compassion immediately goes out to the person that's in need. No, I'm not, well, maybe I shouldn't put it like that because I'm not saying here that it doesn't. But what I am saying is that the initial response is a different one. In verse 19, Jesus answers him and says, Now, this is a strange answer. It's spoken, it seems directly to the person, but our Lord addresses a generation. Oh, faithless generation, how long? Shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Faithless generation, he says. Now, who's that a reference to? Who's he talking about? Oh, faithless generation. Well, friends, I think the best answer to give that question is just everyone. Everyone. Especially when he has just come down from fellowship with Moses and Elijah. Two men who are full of faith, full of love, and full of holiness. And in the presence of his father and in glory. He's come from there to this. To this. And all he sees around him is just in the light of that. And in comparison with that. The greater our own exposure to holiness. The greater our sensitivity to sin. You've known that in your own life. The, The closer you've got to God the more difficult and problematic sin becomes. And to come down from heaven to this is a shock 
Um, I think you know the kind of thing that I mean. Again, let me just speak about uh, a communion season. Many of us have had communion seasons uh, where we've been drawn really close to God over a period of days, enjoying the company and the fellowship of his people. And then you come down from the mountain. And what's the truth in those situations? Well, ordinary things that are acceptable in their time become trivial and hard to bear. Lawful things themselves just suddenly seem to be unclean. And sins that would be at the level of an irritation become horrific. I remember myself very clearly on more than one occasion seeing a simple newspaper and wanting to have nothing to do with it. Just because I had been somewhere else in the presence of God. And it transformed everything that you saw afterwards. Well, we have to import all that into this. To understand this exclamation from the Lord's heart. When he's confronted with this sight. Oh, faithless generation. There's unbelief all around. For example, the scribes. Well, there's unbelief there. The crowd. Well, they're swayed by the scribes and by the unbelief of the disciples. The nine disciples, well, there's unbelief there. Matthew tells us that they confessed themselves. They were not believing. Christ said, you didn't have enough faith for the occasion. The man himself with the son, well, he confesses it. I believe, but help my unbelief. Unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. Everywhere he looks. Is it any wonder that he says, how long will I be with you? And how long will I bear with you? It's a man who simply longs to be home because he's just been reminded of what home is like. That's it. He, he's been home for a while. He's been home. And he knows he's got to come back to this wilderness and he's got to go through it alone and to face hell. How long is this going to take? How long? We can understand that too. And you sometimes find when uh, Christians are nearing the end themselves and uh, they feel that the pilgrimage is really over. They feel they're being, I, I think quite often Christians are especially sanctified before before they, they pass away. I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to speak on definitively or authoritatively, but we know that believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, but very often there's a ripening process. And, and you see it in them. They kind of reach this situation where I've had enough of this. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. And they're almost wriggling out of it as, a, as the butterfly wriggles out of the cocoon and the carcass and leaving this behind and flying up to something new. Well, that's how the Lord felt. He's impatient, as it were, to leave this behind. Can I just say impatient, obviously, not in the sense of sinfulness, but just in a holy hurry, let's say, in a holy hurry for the whole thing to be done and to be back in the presence of God. But although that was his first exclamation, he doesn't stop there. The next thing that he says is, bring him to me. Ah, yes, friends. He is here to seek and to save that which is lost. And he's not going to turn away this man or this boy. And 
How encouraging was that? And he takes the boy to Christ and disaster strikes because there and then in the presence of Christ the evil spirit casts the boy to the ground he convulses and he foams at the mouth and becomes rigid. Again, there's no surprise in that. In one way there is. You would expect in the presence of Christ not to find that. But I think this is the Bible's way of telling us that very often the nearer you get to Christ, the harder the devil works to actually keep you from him. Again, going back to the text I mentioned in Revelation, the devil has come down to you. Woe to you, earth and sea. One minute he was talking about heaven, but then the focus turns to the earth where the devil concentrates his work. Woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why? For he knows his time is short. The shorter he knows his time to be, the angrier he gets. And you know, uh, we can understand that. That's what happens when a person is motivated by total malevolence. I haven't got a lot of time to do what damage I can. Let me do what I can, and as much as I can, in the short time that I have left. And that doesn't just happen on the cosmic scale. It happens on the individual scale. When the devil sees a soul getting interested, a soul picking up the Bible, or a soul coming to church like you've come to church tonight, don't be surprised if hell is let loose. Don't be surprised if things come in the way and difficulties come, things to hinder you and to stop you from coming to the Lord. Because the devil suspects, at least with you, that his time might be short. And for him, every soul lost it's not just a lost soul, but maybe other potential lost souls. The devil is more keen to kill souls than you are to save them. The devil is busier tonight destroying souls than we as Christians are trying to save them. Shame on me, maybe. Shame on you. But the devil's not lazy. So that was a trial for the father, was it not? If this father thought that Christ could help, this is the second huge disappointment to discover that the minute he gets near the Lord, the paralysis is obvious. It's like saying, well, I've come here to get better. I've come to the church to get better and everything's getting worse. It's easy for the father to conclude, well, I've heard that other people have got a blessing. I've heard that other people have been healed. It's not for me. It's not for my son. Maybe my son's too far gone. Maybe there's no hope for my family. Maybe there's really no hope for me. And the interesting thing is, it's almost difficult to believe that Christ seems to kind of ram home the difficulty. Christ asks the question that we wouldn't have wanted him to ask. How long has he been in this condition? The man says, since he was young, which is what the word means. He's been like this since he was young. I, I saw it come into him. I saw him take it over. Why does the Lord ask that? You know, it's like, it's like a discouraging question. But again, you can't help but feel that the Lord somehow, well, he has to. He has to strip us. He has to take us low. 
Sin in us is so stubborn and so sick that he has to bring us right down low to get to the point where we really want God to work and where we need God to work. And we recognize that no human help will avail and that only God can do it. How does the man respond? Well, he says to Christ, if you can do anything, help us. Help us, he says. Now, that's interesting. It was his son he took. It was his son he was concerned about. It's his son's spiritual condition that was a grief to him. He had recognized that his son wasn't just sick, but sick with sin and sick with evil. But suddenly he says, help us. Does he need help himself? Well, yes, he does. Sometimes we look for help for our families and we don't realize we need it ourselves. There are some people, I meet them and they tell me stories about their sons or their daughters and they haven't come to Christ themselves. They tell them about the waywardness of their family and they're sitting there lost themselves. They're sitting there going to hell describing the waywardness of their families. As I've often said to congregations before, every time I fly in a plane, I'm told that when the oxygen mask falls, I've got to put it on myself first. My instinct is to put it on my child first. But no, when it comes to this, I've got to help myself. And only if I help myself can I be any help to my child. And how, in the name of God, can it be any different in connection with your soul? How is it that you could want something for your child that you haven't taken care of in your own life? What sense does that make? And maybe even if you are a Christian, maybe you are still very concerned about something in your home and family and God is first of all concerned about something in yourself. If you can do anything, help us. What's Christ's reply, if you can believe? It's easy to read that and miss the way that one responds to the other. <clears throat> Always mismanaging time. Anyway, it's easy to miss the way that one responds to the other. If you can, be, if you can do anything, the man says. If you can believe, Christ says. Do you see how the one gets back at the other and the one is responding to them? If you can do anything, oh, the Lord says, if you can believe. It's as though the Lord says, listen, what I can and can't do isn't the issue. As far as that's concerned, you should know that I can do everything and nothing is beyond me. But the issue here is in connection with you. The issue is whether or not you can believe the issue is not my ability, but your willingness to trust in my ability. That is the issue. And it always is the issue. It always is the issue. Tonight Christ is calling you to trust him. To trust him as a saviour for yourself. As lord of your life. And he calls on you to yield yourself over to him and to obey his word and commandment. That's got knock-on implications for friends, family, people, who knows what. But faith means 
that you do that and you let him govern how the chips fall. We are always afraid of how the chips will fall. He governs the chips and where they fall, just like he governs the sparrows and where they fall. But the whole essence of faith is believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does the man respond? Well, he responds with these immortal words, I believe, help my unbelief. Now that's what I would call a great statement of faith. I wouldn't call it a statement of great faith, but I would call it a great statement of faith. When you think about that, you can immediately, I suppose, see the difference between the two. It's not a statement of great faith, because obviously it's not great faith. But it is a great statement of faith. It's honest, it's true, and it's real. And for my part, I'm thankful tonight, as as I've been thankful for many years, that this statement is there. And I suppose you're thankful too that this statement is there. This isn't an unbeliever trying to believe, whatever that means. This is a believer struggling with doubt and unbelief, as believers often do. You may think to yourself, well, I can't be a Christian tonight because I'm actually struggling with doubt and I'm struggling with unbelief. Well, my guess is that every Christian in here has struggled with doubt and unbelief. I certainly have. A lot. I've had to put this prayer up to Christ often. But that's the point. I put it up to him. That, in a way, is the difference between an unbeliever who's trying to believe, like I say, whatever that means, and a believer who struggles with doubt. In other words, look at this man. He doesn't like his unbelief. He doesn't want his unbelief. He hates his unbelief. He wants rid of his unbelief. So much so that he takes it to Christ and says, please, you deal with it. I believe. That's that's his primary statement. I believe. But please deal with this. He goes to the right place to deal with it. You go to the right place to deal with it too. Don't let the fact that it's there put you off. Come to Christ and ask him to deal with it. That's all you can do. And that's all that Christ wants you to do. Because you know what? This was good enough for the Lord. It was good enough for the Lord. He didn't turn around and say, Ah, that won't do. He actually dismissed the evil spirit from the child, from the boy, the young man. And he healed the young man. And he healed his father too. Wherever exactly his father stood, he stood on solid ground of faith once he made this confession. You know, the interesting thing is, like I said, that at no point did the man turn around and go back home. Just like the woman from Syrophoenicia, he wouldn't let go of the Lord until he got from the Lord what he needed from the Lord. What a great sample for ourselves. Like I said, my time is gone and it's way past gone. The only thing that leaves for us to look at is the problem of the nine and their failure to cast out 
the evil spirit, which we'll look at, God willing, tomorrow night. But for now, take this prayer to Christ. I believe, help my unbelief. Let's stand to pray. O Lord, O God, we are thankful tonight that you accept faith, weak as it may be, providing it does what it should in clinging to Christ. And to whom else can we go but to the one who has the words of eternal life? And we know enough about ourselves now and our own condition to know that nobody else can help us but him. And we pray tonight that you would lay your hand upon us and grant us whatever strength we need to yield ourselves to the Lord. In so doing, we find far more than we lose. Oh, we pray your blessing upon the message of the gospel and uh, graciously accept us in the precious Redeemer's name. Amen. Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 116. I love the Lord because my voice and prayers heeded here. I, while I live, will call on him who bowed to me his ear. That's what he does. Of death the cords and sorrows did about me compass round. The pains of hell took hold on me. I grief and trouble found. He then describes how he called on God's name and how God delivered him. The opening four stanzas we stand to sing them to God's words. I love the Lord because my